If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. The Speech Uncensored podcast is your stop to learn all things medical speech and language pathology related. I'm your host, Leanne Porter. I'm so glad that you're here and welcome to the first ever two hour podcast. (laughs) I hope you like it. I'm so excited to share this with you. Caitlin Brown is a past podcast guest that I'm delighted to have back, and we are taking a deep dive into pediatric dysphagia. Caitlin is guiding me on the hallmarks and the red flags. She's looking at patients who may present with multiple diagnoses and symptoms. She is examining the anatomy and physiology of the swallowing mechanism in pediatric patients, in infants, in toddlers, and in children. And yeah, she's like covering everything. It's That's why it's two hours, friends. So like strap in, like go for a nice long walk on a beautiful day, and let's learn about all things pediatric dysphagia. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's course. Tonight's topic is Pediatric Dysphagia, Hallmarks and Red Flags, presented by Caitlin Brown. And um, so tonight's course is two hours. We're so glad that you're here with us. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. I'd love to introduce you to Caitlin Brown. So Caitlin, join us. Hey, everybody. Can you hear me? You sound great. Yep. Okay. Wonderful. Um, So sorry about my gaming headphones. They belong to my husband and I really didn't want y'all to hear our little three month old going crazy at bedtime. Um, So my name is Caitlin Brown. Um, I have been a speech therapist now for about seven years. I started with adults and then I made the transition to pediatrics in 2017. Um, Before Before that, I worked part-time for a little bit in 2016 and then made the full switch to full-time position at a private practice clinic. Um, We've got occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy at our office. And um, so I live in North Georgia. My husband and I have been married for almost two years, and we just welcomed our son in November. So he's a little one, and we have two dogs, Gracie and Bo. I recently graduated from Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in December with my um, SLPD, my doctorate. And uh, basically, I plan to continue to teach more continuing education courses regarding pediatric dysphagia in particular. Um, I'm in the process of obtaining my board certified swallowing specialist, and I'm also in the process of becoming a certified lactation counselor. So just a few things, you know, check one box and then get more. (laughs) So I really hope that you guys enjoy today's presentation and I hope that you'll join us for part two next week. So now guys, we're going to jump in. I just want to know a little bit more about all of you that are attending. So we've got some questions that should pop up on your screen. So the first one is, is just 
if you currently treat pediatric feeding and swallowing patients, the next one, what setting you're in, and then our third one is just how many years you've worked in pediatrics. Okay, good. So it looks like we have a really good mix of people. Um, I'm surprised to see as many school settings as we have, but that's not a bad thing. Um, honestly, I feel like it's one of those that there are some places that schools are really involved in feeding and swallowing, and then there's others that they don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, we actually do have a quick question, and it's okay. what is next week's topic, Caitlin? Yes, so we will be discussing pediatric dysphagia in regards to the evaluation and treatment. So we'll be diving into all the different kind of questions that you need to ask during an evaluation, what kind of multidisciplinary approach we take when we're treating these patients. So the different specialists that we work with, working with an occupational therapist if it's needed, and then obviously jumping into true treatment methods. So that will be next week's presentation. Okay, so if you're ready, guys, we're going to go ahead and jump into everything we've got. We're going to start with anatomy and physiology. And Leanne, do you have anything before we go? I think we're all set. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So just kind of starting off overall pediatric dysphagia. What is it? As most of you answered, you, first of all, you're all speech therapists. So you have an understanding of what dysphagia is because you took at least one class in graduate school, or I would hope. <laughs> Unfortunately, most universities these days, that's all they offer is one course. And it is supposed to encompass all sorts of dysphagia from infants to adults. And as we well know, they mainly focus on adults. So it's great when you plan on working in a hospital or outpatient or a nursing home. But if you plan on working with children, you generally get one topic or one chapter, you know, one week, whatever it may be from your school. So we're just going to kind of do an overarching view. So it starts with the, obviously deglutition, which is just swallowing the act of swallowing, but it also encompasses feeding and swallowing. Okay. So with feeding that is considered that involves all of the preparation of the food. So, you know, getting it from the fridge, cooking it, preparing it, putting it at the table, and then the true act of chewing, swallowing, um, or for infants sucking. And then obviously dysphagia in and of itself means difficulty swallowing. So that's where you have the difference with a swallowing disorder is a disorder of one or more of the swallowing phases, which we know are oral preparatory, oral, pharyngeal, and esophageal. And any of those can result in penetration or aspiration. And then you have a feeding disorder, and those are problems with the true eating activities. So they may or may not include swallowing problems as well. So we'll jump into what all of these mean a little bit later, but just examples of a feeding disorder may be ARFID, restrictive eating disorder, sensory feeding deficits, failure to thrive, things of that nature. Yes, Leanne. And real quick. Can you tell me what the acronym ARFID and FTT stand for, please? Yes. So FTT is failure to thrive and ARFID, I don't want to mess this up. So I'm going to pull it up on my paper, wherever on earth it just went. Well, I think it's on a future slide, right? It is. It is. I want to pull it up though, just so that I have it and make sure that we don't run into this problem again. Sorry. 
Oh, we've got some questions from the audience. Anxiety-related food intake disorder. Thank you, Deanna. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good that I pulled this up because apparently about two pages of my notes didn't print. So there we go. Okay. Alrighty, guys. Um, Sorry about that. So just to kind of continue, as we know, you know, as professionals, we know that pediatric and adult dysphagia not the same, but it's one of those that a lot of people think that it is pretty similar. And so we're going to go into how it's different and what to look for in children and what classifies it truly as dysphagia. And then what kind of presentations we see in infants, toddlers, and children. So we're just going to talk about how the two are different. Okay. So we know that in neonates and infants, there's limited muscular control, okay? So they don't have a lot of airway protection other than what we provide them postularly and also just what kind of bottles we're using. Um, and then with for adults, it's the muscle is the main anatomical feature for an effective and efficient swallow. Um, the pathways for the swallow are similar in both in the sense that they go from the mouth through the esophagus to the stomach. However, there are some structural differences, which we're going to talk talk about here in just a few minutes. So in infants, the accuracy of timing between that suck, swallow, breathe pattern is essential for them to complete that safe and efficient swallow. And in infants from zero to three months, it's highly dependent on reflexes. So including the rooting reflex, which is when they turn their head towards anything that is close to their mouth. Um, And then you have the sucking reflex, which is obviously that distinct motor response to draw the milk or formula from the breast or bottle. And then these reflexes eventually are replaced with the volitional movement of their tongue. So the anatomy of our pediatric patients and adult patients are different, which can change your course of treatment and evaluation process, which we're going to talk a little bit further about on our upcoming slides. Um, We also know that the presentation of dysphagia in adults versus pediatrics is also quite different. So for example, in adults, you're going to see dysphagia, you know, in your dementia patients, your Alzheimer's, um, stroke patients, traumatic brain injuries. And while children can also unfortunately suffer from strokes and traumatic brain injuries during delivery, after delivery, um, the presentation of dysphagia itself and the cause of dysphagia in infants and children is typically caused by other things, which we will also talk about here in a little while. So there are a few presentations though that are similar between children and adults. So I just want to touch on those real quick. So motor-based problems. So in adults, that could be the result of a stroke, Parkinson's, things like that. Whereas in children, we often see it in our cerebral palsy kiddos. So postural tone and movement patterns are another similarity. Positioning is that global important factor. As As we all know, if you have poor position, things can quickly go south, literally and figuratively. Um, So overall, oral motor control can be affected or decreased due to a variety of factors. And then along with that weak musculature that can be in the oral cavity and the body as a whole. Um, Again, GI concerns are something that we see in both adults and pediatrics, Um, GERD, gut motility overall. And then all of those things obviously can cause feeding and swallowing deficits. 
So before we move on to the next slide, we have a quick true false question for you guys. Okay. An infant, child, and adult all have the same structures, just smaller. True or false? What I really want to focus on right here is you'll see right here at the back of the throat where that swallow is going to come down. In a kiddo, it just kind of is a curve. And you see more in your adults where it's more of that 90 degree angle, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. Yes, Leanne. Okay. So I'm kind of curious, like, okay, so you've read the true false folks answered it. Yes. What's the answer, Caitlin? Like, so it's false. <laughs> they are not the same. They are very similar. So if you said true, you're not alone. I can't tell you how many times I've had parents, I've had pediatricians, I've even had other clinicians who have said, well, what? it's just the same. We all have the same structures. We're born with the same structures, which is not totally off base, but it's more so that no, our structures are not exactly the same. And when we're, when a newborn is, you know, immediately born, the structures that they have are not the same as an adult. Just like, I mean, a small example is when, when our little ones are born, their noses are predominantly just cartilage. You really can't, they don't have that real bony prominence right here. So that's why, you know, they talk about don't put a baby on their stomach to sleep because they can't turn their head left and right. And if they're facing down, that cartilage is pressed and it is in fact false. So we're going to jump into the how and why on the next slide. And this is a picture that if you guys are interested in, I can share it with you later, but I think they'll also have access to the PowerPoint. Is that correct? Yes. Um, okay. The PowerPoint should be up in the ASHA CEU section on speechtherapypd.com, kind of where they where folks signed up for the CEU. Okay. Okay, great. So you'll see here where we've got just how different it really is. Um, and, you know, this is one you can take it how you like, as far as if it, if it seems like it's a big deal to you or not, we're just going to kind of talk about it. Okay. So in an infant right here, you're going to see your tongue, their tongue is large. So in an infant and even in toddlers, their tongue takes up, takes up the majority of their mouth. Okay. So as you're sitting here, listening to me talk, you can feel in your tongue where it's resting. Your tongue's kind of resting right there in the bottom of your mouth, right? Or if you're stressed, like most of us usually are, it's kind of at the roof of your mouth and your jaw is clenched and your, your shoulders are up here. So as they say, just relax and let that tongue fall down. <laughs> That's where we want it to rest. We don't want it up against our palate. Um, so our little ones though, theirs naturally rest right there between their lips and their palate. And then when they are infants, they still have those little sucking pads in their cheeks and they eventually just turn into what we consider now your buccinator or however you want to pronounce it. I apologize if it is incorrect. I always talk about the buccal cavity. So, um, so those are our muscles that we're going to use for chewing. Okay. And then naturally our littles, they are edentulous. They don't have teeth yet. And then they naturally have that smaller mandible. Okay. And then as we see in adults, that mandible and maxillar maxillar relationship is very similar. Okay. In size and then into the pharynx. So in an infant, there's no distinct oropharynx. However, you go into your adult, they've got the elongated pharynx and then that 
distinct oropharynx exists. And then this is what we were talking about here on the slide before in the picture, where you have that gentle curve between the nasopharynx and hypopharynx in, a, in an infant. And so it's kind of that obtuse angle. And then in the adult, it transitions into that strict 90 degree angle at the skull base, thus creating that full distinct, um, I'm sorry, the distinct difference between the nasopharynx and hypopharynx. And then we go into our larynx, one third of the adult size. Okay, so this is where it really comes into play. I'm sure you've heard it, you know, don't give children under five grapes and don't give them big bites and things like that. And, you know, nowadays I see it all the time where we have all these really cool, um, you know, soft meltable foods like puffs and yogurt melts and things like that. Well, they melt, so it's fine. Well, sometimes yes, but we've also seen the horror stories of where they don't melt and they get stuck in the child's throat because their their larynx and their windpipe is teeny tiny compared to ours okay so that is another one so this is where um all right and then we have half of the true vocal fold of cartilage and then over here you transition into the adult where it's less than one third of the true vocal fold of cartilage and this is really important that we'll talk about later. So in an infant, we have the narrow and vertical epiglottis. It's kind of floppy. Um, and then as we see in adults, it's flat and wide where it comes over and that protection's right there for the swallow. Okay. All right. So now we're just going to kind of talk about some of these development of our systems in utero. And I want you to keep in mind that all of these, especially in children, but eventually in adults, you'll see it too, but especially in our kids where if these systems don't develop properly in utero, that's where we start to see problems and all of these systems work together. So we know that as adults, all of, you know, your body has to work together as a whole to be a full functioning human. Well, the same goes for infants, toddlers, and children. Okay. So it's one of those that as as it develops you may we may not know for sure that that is what's causing the deficit or the swallowing dysfunction however when you start to evaluate these children and all of these things start to come up and these parents start to tell you oh well they were exposed to drugs in utero or they had alcohol exposure or i didn't know i was pregnant and so i was taking an antidepressant, you know, a high dosage of an antidepressant, all of those things can affect these systems in their development. So first, our head and neck development, the facial development of the oral cavity begins in the first 12 weeks, beginning as early as four weeks. So the palate begins towards the end of the fifth week and is completed by the week by week 12. So uh, something we'll talk about later too, our kiddos with our cleft lip, cleft palate, and cleft lip and palate. Those are ones that, yes, it can be congenital. Yes, it can be also inherited, rarely inherited, but it can be something that happens because of different teratogens. Okay. So um, then we have our pharyngeal phase of the swallow, which is one of the first oral motor responses of the pharynx, and that begins between 10 and 11 weeks. And while true suckling begins between week 18 and 24, it has been seen as early as 12 weeks. 
So then we go into our digestive system, okay? And this all starts around week four. So that's kind of our common theme, right? Everything starts around week four and we're kind of ending around week 12. So all of that within that first trimester. And then the second and third trimester, our littles are just practicing that suck, swallow, breathe pattern with the amniotic fluid and being able to process everything in their gut, making sure that they're able to filter it out through their kidneys and urinate, all of that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, so the esophagus reaches its final length by week seven, our respiratory system development again, starts at week four and that tracheoesophageal septum is developed by week five and our larynx is developed by week 10. Then we jump to our cardiovascular system, which is definitely the first organ that begins to function in embryo and it should be functioning by week three. And that's when our blood start, that blood starts to circulate. Those four chambers of the heart are formed between week four and seven. And then in the central nervous system development, we're going to start talking about on our next slide as well. Jump into that a little bit more. So this is just overall abnormalities that we can see that affect feeding and swallowing. And this is something that we see in utero and then as soon as they're born, okay? Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of complications and abnormalities that can occur while the child is still in their mother's belly, okay? Um, so first you have your congenital malformations. Um, these can result from both genetic factors such as chromosomal abnormalities and environmental factors. So those teratogens that we were talking about, this increases the incidence and produces congenital malformations such as drugs and viruses. Um, and the greatest time for the major malformations is before week eight of pregnancy. So again, this is why it's not uncommon for us to see multiple congenital animal. Oh my goodness. And, and all right. Abnormalities. We're going to change it. It's been a long day y'all. And in an infant who has been exposed to these teratogens. Okay. Into our central nervous system damage. These can be caused by a combination of genetic and environmental factors. So 85% of these malformations can be accounted for by deficits in the closure of the neural tube. So spina bifida, that's one that we start to see. Um, congenital malformations of the ventricular system may also result in hydrocephalus. And one of the most common conditions as a result of the neurological impairment is cerebral palsy, okay? Then we jump into, in our branchial arch, arch abnormalities, we've got Trichard-Collins syndrome and Pierre-Robin sequence. And then obviously your cleft lip with or without a cleft palate. Um, in our tongue abnormalities, so we've got some children with Down syndrome may actually have fissures of the tongue. If you've worked with children with Down syndrome, you'll notice on their tongue, it almost looks like they have little slits in their tongue. A lot of times that does not affect their swallowing and feeding abilities. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit further when we get to that slide, but in our kiddos with Down syndrome, they honestly fall into more of the restrictive eating type um, or, you know, negative mealtime behaviors because we all know that they are very, very stubborn. <laughs> so that is one that really the only other thing with that is they are, um, a lot of our children with Down syndrome also have macroglossia, which is an enlarged tongue. Okay. Um, 
ankoglossia, which is also tongue tie. This can interfere with feeding predominantly with breastfeeding, but it can be something that we see issues with later down the line. So that is another one. We'll talk more about that in detail here in a, in a little bit. Um, with our respiratory tract ab abnormalities, the most common malformation of this one is going to be your tracheoesophageal fistula or TEF. And this is associated with esophageal atresia in about 90% of the cases. And this is all that means is that's abnormal communication between the trachea and the esophagus. Okay. And so then that takes us into the esophageal abnormalities, which is where you have the esophageal atresia. And as mentioned above, that can occur <clears throat> um, as the failure of the recanalization of the esophagus. And that happens during the eighth week too. And this is where the little one is unable to follow, swallow that amniotic fluid, then results in high levels of amniotic fluid for the mom, slow growth rate of the fetus. And a lot of times the swallowing appears normal upon delivery, but soon after all the liquids are regurgitated through the nose or mouth causing respiratory distress. So it's a really scary thing, especially for parents, but it can be fixed. Um, and then we've got our stomach abnormalities. So the main one there is going to be your pyloric stenosis. And that's the only common malformation of the stomach, which is the thickening of the pylorus and results in projectile vomiting in infants. That's usually almost always requires a surgical repair. Hey, Leanne. Hey, um, what part of the stomach is the pylorus? Is that like an opening or an exit area or? Yes. Yeah, so it, it's right there connected um, with the esophagus and the stomach, right? Where typically you would see that upper esophageal sphincter mm -hmm. opening, closing and the lower, mm -hmm. right? So it's right, it's right in there. Oh, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So um, a narrowing of that area. And so, mm -hmm. um, well, it's a, yeah, so thickening. It's so it, it gets get too them. thick. Mm -hmm. And okay. so instead of them being, so narrowing, thickening, very similar, <laughs> okay. but yeah, instead of them being able to process it all properly coming back up. So, and, um, do you know which type of surgery they might do to address that issue off the top of your head? <laughs> you know, uh, no, no. Um, and I actually just had a friend who their little one had pyloric stenosis. Um, but I don't know that. I don't know that it's a particular, I'm sure the surgery has a name, but almost always they just talk about it being that pyloric repair from my understanding. Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we have our cardiac deficits. Okay. So obviously cardiac deficits themselves, they're not going to ca cause oral motor feeding problems. However, in our infants and children with cardiac anomalies, they have that increased work of breathing and then just often fatigue faster during a meal. Um, so I actually have a little one that we will talk about a little bit later who has had, let's see, she is a year and a half old and she's had four heart surgeries and she has had a feeding tube, all sorts of stuff. But anyway, she is one that she would cry and scream. And so we did have to co-treat with her because of her heart condition. And we, she couldn't get over a certain level of output. Um, her oxygen could not drop below a certain level, which 
y'all are familiar with if you work in adults too. You know, you've got to watch that oxygen level, all that kind of stuff. So um, again, we'll chat about that a little bit later. But now we are going to just kind of pause. I know we did a lot. So do we have any questions so far? If not, I am not offended. Um, anatomy and physiology is not the most exciting thing. And we really just did a really, really short touch on everything. So I just wanted to give you guys the opportunity to ask any questions if you have any thus far. Yeah. So we'll wait just a, a hot minute here to see if there are any questions before we move. Um, into the next area where we're going to do, I say we very generously, where <laughs> before Caitlin does a deep dive into um, the red flags uh, that you'll see. Oh, okay. Here's one. Let me pop over and grab that one real quick. Okay. So of the list you reviewed, what are the most common issues that you run into, Caitlin? Yeah. So actually we're going to jump into that on our next slide. So you kind of segued perfectly if no one else has any other questions. We'll just go right in. Yeah, I think so. Go right Is that ahead. Good. Okay. So I found it easiest y'all to make just a big list of our red flags and common symptoms. Um, first thing I'm going to tell you nine times out of 10, your kids that you see, they're not going to have just one of these. It's going to be multiples. Um, and a lot of times too, you have to keep in mind, your parents are going to describe it much differently than what you see here. Some of them are, I mean, they're great and they're going to tell you everything, you know, word for word, exactly how you need to know. Um, you know, they've researched Google <laughs> and so they've got all these technical terms, which is fine. I appreciate the effort. So, um, so we'll kind of go through these, talk about what they are, how they present in our kiddos, how they're different in some of the different kids, because, you know, coughing and choking in an infant is not necessarily the same as what you see in a toddler or an older child. Okay. So we'll kind of start with that. So our coughing and choking. One of the biggest things that I hear from my parents is they're getting choked. They choke on all their food. Okay. Well, one of the first things that we have started requiring at our clinic is we do require that the children have a swallow study mainly for safety concerns so that we know that whatever we're putting in that child's mouth is safe. Um, if they do not require a swallow study or they haven't had a swallow study, we have a physician statement that the doctor can sign saying that they feel confident that there are no swallowing concerns. Um, and again, some of that is a liability, some of it is just safety. Um, so with a lot of that, you see choking. All right. A lot of our parents say that their child is choking. In reality, the child is gagging on their foods. Now that does not happen all the time. I have plenty of kids that I have seen that they are truly choking where they have had to call an ambulance. They've had to do CPR. They have had to do the Heimlich. I mean, it, it's scary. And so that's another one, like we talked about a minute ago, where we were talking about, you know, watching with the puffs and with the Gerber melts, things like that with our kids that you can't just put it in their mouth and trust that it's going to melt because sometimes if they don't let that saliva break it down enough, then it doesn't give it enough time to melt. And then they try to swallow it and it does get stuck and they do end up choking. Um, now the coughing, that's one where 
as we all know, as professionals, coughing is what? Probably the number one sign or symptom of aspiration. Okay. Um, and sometimes just like you and I aspirate, I mean, I aspirated yesterday on water. I took too big of a drink and some of it went down before I was ready. So there came the watery eyes and the red face. So it happens naturally. However, it's all about how your body functions to deal with it. So you'll see coughing and some of it is truly that reflex to protect your airway where they're coughing it up and then we're swallowing it down safely. Um, and then you have the ones that it's the true aspiration. So it's knowing the difference. And that again, that's where we have that swallow study to give us that confirmation of yes or no. Um, Leanne, are we, do we have questions popping up? I just see it. No, sorry. Yeah. I'm communicating in the chats with one of our guests. Um, I did a little online research about the pyloric uh, surgery. Oh, okay. Just shared what I found. So awesome. <laughs> We're just having a little side chat. Don't mind us. Sorry about That's that. That's okay. No, no, no. That's totally fine. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. So then next over here, we've got severe reflux. So that is one where we'll talk about GERD here in a minute, but with our reflux, and this is one more so that is where we differ. All right. So we have our infants. Reflux is normal in infants up until a year. It's normal for them to spit up. Now the difference is, is, okay, are they spitting up violently after every meal? Are they pulling away from the bottle? Are they pulling away from the breast? Are they crying at meal times? All of those things are signs of GERD in an infant. Whereas if they are eating great, they're sucking on, you know, they're latching and their suck swallow breathe pattern is appropriate. And then they're spitting up after a meal realistically, even though it may seem like a lot to a parent, the amount that they're spitting up, if you break it down, it probably comes out to be like a tablespoon or less. If you were to actually compile it into a little puddle, <laughs> which obviously no one does, you're just going to clean it up and go on about your day. But with that being said, that reflex is normal. So it's really important to know the difference. Um, I've got a little one right now who mom is so worried about his spit up, but we're six months old. So it's normal. He's not showing any of the other signs or symptoms for GERD. And so his doctor is not eager to put him on medication, um, which is a good thing. You know, that's the other thing too. We run into as treating therapists. I can't tell you how many times I have kids that they automatically will tell them, okay, we'll put rice or oatmeal in their bottles and see if that helps. And then we jump into medications right away. Yeah. Leanne. Um, quick question. If you could restate the GERD symptoms for infants one more time, please. Yeah. GERD. Um, so you're going to have that severe spitting up. So where it is after every single bottle, they're going to have a lot of crying at meal times. They may turn away from the breast or the bottle. You may have that arching back red face. Um, and when I say they may turn away from the breast or bottle, that could be at any time during a meal. So let's say that you have a breastfed infant, if they are latching on and within a minute, they're coming off the breast, crying, arching, anything like that, you know, refusing all of those, then they latch again. And then a minute later, same kind of thing. And it goes for bottle fed too, but all of those are your signs and symptoms to look out for, for true GERD versus just 
infant reflux, okay? So I'm gonna kind of lump constipation and diarrhea together. Um, I know that yes, this one is definitely more GI, but as we'll talk about next week, GI is going to be one of your best friends. So if you have kiddos that see GI, you will work very closely with them. And I recommend that you do because they will be your right hand man and they will help you through a lot of stuff. And also it helps you understand your child as a whole better, because as we know, treating the child as a whole is extremely important. So um, with our kiddos with constipation. Okay. So this is one that in infants, you don't see constipation so much, um, especially your breastfed infants. So technically breastfed infants can go up to two weeks without pooping. And that's totally normal. Sounds terrible for us, right? But for an, a breastfed infant, that is normal. Uh, now for your bottle fed, they don't typically want them to go or sorry, formula fed. Um, they don't typically go more than a week and then real constipation starts to set in when you start to introduce those solid foods. Okay. When we're kind of pulling back from the formula and from the breast milk and really starting to introduce those solids. Um, and that's where you'll start to see true constipation. Now, the reason that this is important for us is because what that constipation could mean for that kid is so many different things. So they could be having a lot of bloating and stomach discomfort. Um, as we also know, whatever goes in your body has to come out at some point. So if you, if, if you're backed up, if your gut is backed up and you're constipated, you're going to put it in, but it's got to come out. So a lot of times I've got kiddos with constipation that also suffer from reflux or they suffer from vomiting after meals because it's not going out the other end. So it's coming up the other, or they're refusing meals and they're, you know, their parents are like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get them to eat. Well, if they're not pooping, they're not going to want to eat because there's no room in their belly and it hurts when they eat because it's not going through properly. So I say all that to say, that is obviously something that we personally do not treat. That's out of our scope. But it's so important to know that as a therapist, if your child that you're treating has chronic constipation, how you're going to change your treatment methods. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, I just wanted to go back in time a little bit to when you were talking about the liability waiver. Is yeah. that signed for any kid that you see for feeding and swallowing if they have not had a video swallow study? or just the ones that are showing some signs and symptoms, but the doctor doesn't want to have a study done. Mm -hmm. So at our clinic, we actually have um, an intensive feeding clinic we offer. And so we've got outpatient and we offer up to anywhere from one time a week to five days a week. Okay. Um, so one of the things that we implemented when we launched our program was a requirement that all children that came through the program had to have that swallow study. Um, and like I said, this is purely for safety measures because as we know, we can't see what's going on in here. Um, the only way that I'm going to know if they're aspirating for sure, 100%, well, we won't even say hundred percent because modifieds are, you know, with kids. Hmm. So, but again, the only way that I'm going to be able to know and feel comfortable with what I'm putting in and 
is going to be with having that swallow study. Okay. Um, and like I said, yes, liability. So we formulated the liability waiver where if, you know, say the parent says that they don't want to have it done and the doctor agrees, the doctor can sign that. And then we have that on file. So they either have one or the other. Yes. Okay. That's really good. And then one more um, question. Mm-hmm. Uh, once an infant is beginning solids, how often should the little one have a bowel movement? So that's when it starts to become more regular. Okay. So obviously, no, it does not have to be every day. It doesn't even have to be every other day, but it kind of starts to fall into, okay, you don't really want to go more than three to four days without a bowel movement. Um, and that's when you're going to start trying some natural remedies. You know, you might give them, um, prunes for their puree that day. (laughs) Um, you can try some of the different bicycles with their legs, some of the tummy massage, things like that. Um, obviously it depends what pediatricians and what doctors you're working with. Some are very, very quick to jump on. Oh, let's put them on Miralax (laughs) if they've been constipated once. Um, Others are more reserved and I appreciate that because I don't think that medication is always the answer. I think there's a lot of other things that we can try first. Um, So that is one where usually it should be within three to four days before you would consider them truly constipated. Um, And then you're going to see that considered chronic constipation if it's happening for more than a few weeks in a row. Okay. Um, so with the diarrhea that kind of goes hand in hand, right. With the constipation. So if you have an upset stomach, same kind of thing, the diarrhea is very uncomfortable. And for kids, they have no idea why it's happening. Right. So we, as adults have the understanding of what's happening to our bodies when that occurs, it's not fun for anybody, but we at least know what's happening. They don't. Okay. So they, you know, a lot of it can be very uncomfortable, especially if they're still in diapers right? Because they're constantly having their little bottoms wiped. They almost always end up with a diaper rash, which is even more painful. Um, So you've got all sorts of issues there too. Um, But diarrhea can also be a red flag for you to look further into, well, what's causing this diarrhea? Is it a food sensitivity? Is it a food allergy? You know, do we have EOE going on? what are these different things? So again, I tell you all of these red flags to make sure that no, this is again, not something that we treat as speech therapists, but it is something that it's important to know whether they've got a healthy GI system or whether we're dealing with constipation, diarrhea, vomiting. Um, so the vomiting kind of ties in with all of that. Um, yes, Leanne. And, um, EOE, I wish I could remember how to say the E, the first E it's, yep. it trips me up every time. Is synophilic esophagitis. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, um, for people who are just kind of hearing EOE and uh, that word that you said, um, what does it mean? So that is when there are more than 15 eosinophils in your esophagus. Um, and that is found by doing a biopsy, which is done through either when they're having a triple scope or an upper endoscopy done, the doctor will take a biopsy, run it. And if, again, if it has more than 15 eosinophils, then they have true EOE, which is the eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, And that can be characterized by vomiting, reflux, severe discomfort, 
you've got your arching back, you've got your crying, refusal behaviors around meal times because it hurts when they eat. Um, yes. And then overall allergic reactions. You can still, with EOE kiddos, you can still see, um, you know, rashes on their bodies and things like that. But that's when it's extremely severe. Um, so it's easier to catch if you have a rash alongside all of those other symptoms, but not so much if you don't. Yeah. And I just wanted to also plug that amazing course that you did. That was a one hour course on GERD versus EOE similarities and differences and how to treat both as an SLP. And of course, from that pediatric feeding and swallowing SLP perspective. Um, so that's um, a course that's available here or on the podcast too, on speech uncensored. Um, so yeah, that was like our first introduction where I started yeah. from you. So. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, guys. So our vomiting, same kind of thing. Yes, it is something that we cannot treat by itself, but something we didn't need to know about. Um, I have kiddos that come to me and their parents tell me, well, they vomit after every meal. What? Like huge red flags, mind blown. Your kid is vomiting after every meal. Are you kidding me? Like how, how is their esophagus not just shredded? I don't understand. Well, <laughs> it's not always vomiting either. So, you know, when we think vomiting, I'm thinking a decent amount of size of something is coming up and you've got, you know, mixed in chunks of food and liquid. We won't go into further detail because you probably all just ate or are eating. But with that being said, if a child, if a parent reports that there's constant vomiting, that is something that is a big red flag for you. And you definitely need to refer them out. Um, and that is something we'll talk more about next week too, but it is definitely something you want to look into. It could be that they're not truly vomiting, but that's also a sign of GERD. So if they are truly vomiting after every meal, it could be severe GERD that's going untreated. Um, and as we also know, vomiting that often can be terrible for the esophagus and especially in our little children, like, all right, so we have a two-year-old that's vomiting after every meal and it's been going on for three months. Their esophagus is probably extremely inflamed and irritated. So we need to, you know, and they're refusing foods. All of these kind of things are signs and symptoms of, okay, you probably don't have a true feeding or swallowing disorder. You have undiagnosed GERD and we've got to get that under control. So that's something else to remember with these first few that we talked about as far as reflux, GERD, constipation, diarrhea, vomiting. Those are all things that when you hear those, if they don't go along with some of these other things we're about to talk about, then a lot of times they may not really need us. They may need a specialist like a GI or an ENT or who, you know, pulmonologist, things like that. Um, mainly GI for those different symptoms, but that, and as speech therapists, I cannot stress enough. It is okay to refer them out and say, after you get this taken care of, if you're still having problems after this, all of these symptoms are being treated by your GI or by your pediatrician and you're still having problems, it's okay to come back, but you don't have to pick everybody up because they have these different symptoms. It's okay to say, Hey, let's tackle the why first and treat those underlying symptoms. And then we can come back and see if we truly have 
a swallowing or feeding dysfunction or disorder. Yeah, Leanne. Okay, so quick question. Um, can you tease apart uh, the differences and similarities of vomiting versus severe reflux? Yeah, so with your reflux, kind of like we talked about, you're going to see other signs and symptoms, right? So with your reflux, before it's considered GERD, you're going to be seeing just that kind of overall discomfort. I mean, think about your, your personal reflux, right? So if you eat something spicy, you're probably going to be kind of burping it up, kind of uncomfortable. You know, you might take some Tums, you might take an over-the-counter Omeprazole, something like that. Um, and then it's usually worse at night, that kind of thing, but you're not necessarily going to be vomiting. So if we see vomiting, that is usually indicative of true GERD. Um, sometimes it's not, but most of the time your vomiting is going to go in with GERD, whereas your severe reflux, you really shouldn't be seeing vomiting. Um, now every once in a while, sure. If it's been bad enough and let's say you had, 10 chili peppers, you might vomit. <laughs> so it really just depends on what they've eaten too. And that's why we stress a lot to our parents about making sure, you know, no, it doesn't have to be incredibly specific, but keeping a food diary is going to be really beneficial for your kids because then you can go back and easily say, oh, well, they had this. I wonder if that upset their stomach because a lot of our families don't they don't think about that kind of stuff. And so they'll give them these different foods and then they're showing up with all of these symptoms and lo and behold, it's really just a food sensitivity or, a you know, it could just be something in particular they ate that day and not necessarily an allergy or sensitivity. Did that clear that up? I mean, I think so, but I didn't have the okay. question. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll keep going. And if we need to talk more about it, we will. So, okay, great. Okay. So the next one here, we've got our anterior loss of liquids. So that's going to be when you see the liquids coming out of the sides or the front, right? So that can be from both bottle, sippy cup, open cup, can be foods. <laughs> I didn't even put that. I should have put foods. Um, Unfortunately, we also see kids that it just kind of comes out and it all is right here. All right. A lot of times that is due to poor oral motor control, um, management of the bolus. They have trouble with overall oral manipulation. It could be decreased lingual strength. Um, again, all things that we're going to talk about in our course next week, but these are just kind of things to look out for. So mainly this is one that I see with liquids. All right. So if I have a little infant and they come in and they are constantly losing liquids from one side or the other, or both, um, that can be indicative that we have some oral motor stuff going on, right? Um, just overall poor strength coordination. Okay. Then we've got our pocketing. So, pocketing and overstuffing, I'm going to kind of lump these together. So, our overstuffing. <laughs> I have heard this described by parents in so many different ways. And it's kind of comical. I think my favorite is <laughs> um, a mom, she compared her daughter to a conveyor belt. Okay. Which is like, it's funny to us, but it's so sad all at the same time. But it's so true too. Because when you see it happen, you're like, oh my gosh, it makes sense. But they're just shoveling that food in. 
Now, sometimes, unfortunately, there are some environmental factors that, you know, our kiddos in foster care, they didn't know when their next meal was going to come. So we see them overstuffing because they want to eat as much as they can because they don't know when they're going to get to eat again. Super sad example, but it happens. Um, depending on where you work, you might see it more often than not. Um, unfortunately, I have seen that a lot. So that is one where the overstuffing, it can be, you know, there can be different reasons. A lot of times it's just because they're young and they need to be taught um, because that's not something that's innate to us as humans. We don't naturally, our bodies don't naturally know to take small bites, chew them up, swallow them. We just think, oh, this is good. I'm going to eat more. I'm going to eat more and more and more. And then that's where the overstuffing comes from. Our pocketing, that starts to pull in your weakened oral motor strength control manipulation management, right? So this is where you can be pocketing in your buccal cavities right there in your cheeks where we look like chubby bunny, okay? Or they can pocket right there on that hard palate at the roof of their mouth. Um, you see both or you see one or the other. Um, but that is one to definitely look out for. The reason that that can be so dangerous is because I have kids that they pocket, their parents don't know it. And then an hour later, they start choking on food that's still in their mouth. Okay. Because they're running around outside playing. Mom and dad had no idea there was still food in there and they start coughing, choking, whatever may happen. That is one of my number one causes for premature spillage <laughs> because they're not ready for that swallow and it goes down, right? And then you gotta, we've got a 50-50 chance that they aspirate it or they don't because with kiddos, especially when they're not ready for that swallow, it's a lot harder for them to manage that, okay? Um, so refusing foods and refusing various textures, those two kind of go hand in hand as well. Um, this kind of gets into, excuse me, our negative mealtime behaviors, right? So this kind of goes into our feeding kids more so than just our swallowing. Um, so when our kiddos start refusing foods, we want to figure out why. Um, and that is one that we'll talk about on the next slide. But keep in mind that this is something we can see, like we talked about, as a result of reflux, vomiting. We can see it as a result of sensory processing disorder, autism spectrum disorder. Um, we also just have kids that have bad behaviors and they start refusing foods. But nine times out of 10, there's a reason that a kid who was right on target, going up that food continuum, no issues, starts refusing foods. And so it's really important that as a treating speech therapist, that you get to the bottom of the why. Um, and I think that that's something that we really need to focus more on is figuring out what's wrong. What is our underlying cause of this versus just treating, okay, well, they're refusing foods. Well, let's get them to try new foods. Well, yeah, that's great in theory, but if you don't know the underlying cause and this child ends up having ARFID and you're just using standard treatment methods, not, you know, not SOS feeding or not a mixed behavioral SOS method, you know, if you're not using the true evidence-based methods in regards to ARFID, 
you can do more harm than good. Okay. And then your kiddos have to go to a different therapist for all sorts of other psychological things. Okay. So it's really important that we know the why. And that goes for all of these things. Okay. Um, so that's why I, I wanted to list as much as possible. I know it can be kind of overwhelming and I know I'm probably throwing a lot at you guys, but I wanted to list as many as possible so that you see where all of these things are really important to know, you know, okay, these, you know, these go together. These could be causing this. Um, and we'll talk about on the next slide, talking about what kind of comorbidities we see with those things as well. Okay. So, um, refusing our various textures. So obviously these are our kiddos that they come in and they are eating puree baby foods just fine. But as soon as a texture is introduced, they start gagging and they're spitting it out or they're throwing their foods. They don't want to eat it. Again, we want to look for the underlying why. Um, sometimes it's truly a texture aversion, um, but a lot of times that does fall into a sensory processing disorder or a sensory concern, which is where we pull in our OTs, okay? Um, next up, we have our strider. So <laughs> that's when I have a funny comparison for this too. You have that goose honking sound. Um, I just want you guys after the course, because I'm not going to imitate what this sounds like, after the course, I want you to Google it, Strider in, in an infant, and just hear that, okay? Um, when you hear that sound, pulmonology, okay? Again, something we will talk in depth about next week, but if you hear that sound and they have not seen a pulmonologist, that's going to be your first referral. Um, again, mainly because there's probably something that's causing the Strider, which we'll talk about on our next slide, which is laryngomalacia or tracheomalacia. Um, and a lot of times that is something that our kiddos just have to grow out of, but sometimes there are some treatments that the pulmonologist can do to help them. Okay. And Strider can also be indicative of other respiratory difficulties. Okay. So definitely something we want to keep in check and make sure that we're monitoring if we're going to be working with this child in regards to food and liquids. Okay. Um, Next up, you have your increased fatigue during meals. So these are your kids that this could be anywhere from, when I say increased fatigue, this could be anywhere from the actual act of chewing to the swallow. If you see a kiddo that they're taking a really long time to chew up, let's say a peanut butter sandwich, okay? Well, a peanut butter sandwich is kind of complex anyway. So think about their age. Are they, you know, are they two? and they're doing a peanut butter sandwich and it's taking them a little while? If so, that's okay because peanut butter is really hard to manipulate in your, in your mouth and form that bolus and then swallow it. And, you know, oral stasis is common around that time, around two. So they may need that liquid wash. They may need a little longer to chew it. That's okay. Now, if we have a five-year-old and it's taking them five minutes to chew up a bite of a peanut butter sandwich, that's a different story. That's where we're going to start to look at, okay, where, you know, where's the issue? Is it, is it oral motor? Is it that lingual control? That kind of thing. Um, and then just, again, the increased fatigue, a lot of times that leads to our kiddos starting to refuse foods earlier in the meal. So they may not truly be full. Those are where you start to see your quote unquote grazers 
Okay. So our kiddos that they only eat little bits at a time, that's because it's easier for them. Okay. Um, now, not always is that the case. I have plenty of kids that they, they are grazers by their own accord because of other things. But one of my first places to look, if I hear that, oh, well, it takes them 30 minutes to finish a meal and they're, you know, three. Okay. Well, why that's going to, and that's going to be one of my first places to look is, are we getting fatigued during a meal? Is it, is it oral motor? Okay. And then that does tie into our inability to finish meals. So a lot of times our kiddos that are having trouble with fatigue or any of these up here, if they, you know, if they are getting choked or they're coughing or they're having trouble just with overall chewing, that may be one where they stop eating because it's easier. Okay. Um, negative mealtime behaviors. This is one, this encompasses whoo, so much of what we see, right? So this is your kiddo that won't even get in the high chair. They, they can't have any, any kind of new food. The food can only be presented in a McDonald's chicken nugget container, or they can only have McDonald's chicken nuggets. Um, they, you know, they cry, scream, tantrum, hit their head on the high chair, throw food on the table, throw food at you. <laughs> um, you know, all of these different refusal behaviors are those negative mealtime behaviors. Um, you have kids that will avoid eating by talking to you instead of trying to eat or they'll, you know, they may eat a little and then they go run away and then they'll come back and eat another. So again, all those kind of tie in together too. Um, the arching back is one that we talked about a lot of times goes with that reflex, but it's, again, it's really more so you see the arching back in our littles, in our infants. Okay. So when we're holding them in that sideline position, whether they be breastfeeding or bottle fed is where you're going to kind of start to see that arching back. It can also be after meals. Okay. And that could just be indicative of an upset stomach. So that may not be something else, but the biggest thing to look out for and to ask our parents about the arching back, is it happening every day? And is it happening multiple times a day? Okay. So if this is something, oh, well, they did it. They did it a couple times. Well, it's probably just an upset belly, not something we need to be super concerned about, but if it's happening after every meal, then that's something we definitely want to note. Okay. Um, excessive crying. Again, this is more in our littles, but it ties into our toddlers and older children too, mainly our little ones. Okay. So if they have a lot of crying during bottle and breastfeeding, um, they're having a lot of difficulty tolerating it. It could be that they've got a poor suck, swallow, breathe pattern. It could be poor latching. It could be a lip and tongue tie. And so they're having trouble with that. It could be that reflux. Um, there's a number of things. So again, all of these go together to, to get us to that bottom line of why, why is this all happening? Okay. The sneezing, that is one, as we all know, common sign and symptom of aspiration. So if they, if they swallow and a couple, <laughs> couple seconds later, or a minute later, or a couple minutes later, they start sneezing, that can be indicative of aspiration. Okay. Um, whoops. I don't know if I did that. Sorry. All right. So then we have our weight late, uh, weight loss, lack of weight gain. So those kind of go together, but they don't. All right. So our weight loss, 
that's going to be our kiddos that they up until this point, they've been kind of moving up on that continuum and they're doing good. And then all of a sudden they are our kids that start refusing foods and they start refusing to eat and okay, we're no longer gaining weight and we're start to, you know, we're, it's the pounds are coming off versus going on. And anytime in infants and children, that's not what we want to see. Okay. Um, lack of weight gain. The reason I say that those two are different is because our lack of weight gain kids that honestly usually starts in the beginning. Okay. So they're having trouble putting weight on from the start. Now, sometimes it, it is a little bit later and it does go with our kiddos that are refusing foods. Um, but overall, if they're not gaining weight again, and some of these may go hand in hand. So if we have a kiddo that's not gaining weight and they're also dealing with vomiting and severe reflux, okay, are they in pain? And so they're not eating, so they're not gaining weight. Or if they're vomiting, well, they're vomiting up all their nutrients. So how are they going to gain weight? You know, all things to kind of consider and think about there. Your runny or stuffy nose. This is probably one of the hardest ones in kids because what kid do you know that doesn't have a runny or stuffy nose? Okay. <laughs> so this is one where we have to differentiate. Is it allergies? Is it a common cold? Is it cause for concern? Okay. So that's one where you're really going to rely on your pediatricians a lot for that. So if they have chronic runny or stuffy nose, hmm, does it happen after we're eating? Like after we've had a meal, is it more common or is it just all the time? Um, just some different things to kind of keep in the back of your mind as far as questions that you might want to ask. Yeah, Leanne. Okay. So we have a question that's looking for some clarification on how aspiration leads to sneezes. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one where I'll be totally honest. That is that is something that I learned in school as being a symptom of aspiration. So I think what it is more so though in infants and in our littles is just when, so you think about when that liquid goes down the wrong way, um, a lot of times they'll cough, but I don't know if you're super familiar with children or if you work with infants and children a lot, but a lot of times our kiddos, when they cough, it sends them into a sneeze. Why that happens? I don't know. That's a great question. And if anyone wants to look into that besides me, cause I'm going to look this up later, <laughs> I've never really thought about that as to why it happens, but it is a very common theme where they'll start by coughing and then it turns into a sneeze. So again, those kind of can go hand in hand. Okay. Um, I'll take a quick look, um, while you keep working on okay. your outline here. And if I yeah. find anything relevant, I'll let you know. Okay. And it could just be one of those freak things that just happens. Who yeah, that's, that's a really good question. <laughs> okay. Um, so then we have our gagging. So this is one we talked about. You have to really know the difference in gagging and choking. Um, pretty much always our parents are going to classify gagging as choking, and a lot of times the reason that is, is because they can't see what's happening back there, right? 
So automatically when they hear that and see that gag, they think that their child is choking and they go into that fight or flight mode and panic mode. So I think that that's where that confusion happens a lot of times with Pam, um, with parents and caregivers. However, when you're sitting there with the kiddo and you see it, you can tell the difference, obviously, as a trained professional, you can tell if we're gagging or if we're choking. Now, you have to be extremely careful because that gagging can quickly lead to choking. So, you know, I have worked with certain people and individuals, professionals that if a child gags, they're like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Come on, swallow it. And that's one of those that it's, it's not a situation to be taken lightly. So we don't want to strike fear and panic into our children. We don't want to automatically put our hand under their chin, you know, oh, spit it out, spit it out, spit it out. Um, but it is very important to be super hands-on and aware when you have a kid that has known gagging issues that you are 100% eyes on kid anytime there is anything in their mouth. Okay. Because it can, again, it can quickly lead to that choking. Um, and obviously that's the last thing we want in our kids. Okay. Um, our facial color and watery eyes. So that's that other common, you've got red face, watery eyes. This is something that happens in adults too. So this is one we can tie back. Um, same with the wet and gurgly vocal quality. So after a swallow, if you hear that kind of wet, um, just overall, ugh, I can't make it because I don't have anything in my throat right now. But again, you can Google it afterwards and listen to it. But that is one. If you hear that, that's with our kids. If you tell them to clear their throats, they don't know what that means. First of all, um, depending on how old they are, they might be able to imitate you. But a lot of times that can be indicative that we're not getting a full, complete, safe swallow. Okay. Um, that red face, watery eyes, that's just another sign and symptom of aspiration, but definitely something we want to be looking out for, especially if wherever you're working doesn't require that swallow study, or even if you have a swallow study, because like I was saying earlier, as we all know, those swallow studies are not the end all be all. Okay. So with our adults, they're usually more compliant, not always, but <laughs> more compliant than our littles. Okay. So with our babies, they're, they're usually pretty easy going with the swallow studies. They don't love them, but they'll do them. But then when the kids are old enough, about six months and up, is when you start running into those refusal behaviors, which if any of y'all have ever had to have a swallow study, I for one have, and the barium is disgusting. So I don't blame the kids for not wanting to drink it and eat it. Um, cause it's gross. So especially our kids that are those repeats, I call them repeat offenders, <laughs> but our kids that have to have multiple swallow studies, it's one that, you know, they may start off where they're really compliant and they'll participate in the first couple, but then they start to dread going to that place because they know what's about to happen. That, that kind of thing. That's where you just, yeah, Leanne. Oh, um, so I was just going to update you on the like coughing into the sneeze kind of discussion from earlier. Mm -hmm. So in my very quick non-academic research, <laughs> that I did. Um, basically the bottom line was 
Um, we cough and we sneeze to clear material from our airway or our nasal passages. And so if the coughing has brought things up and part of that coughing has led it into the nasal passage, well, then you're going to sneeze to clear out whatever has invaded your nasal passage. That so, totally makes sense. Yeah. And then one of our participants um, also basically kind of shared pretty much exactly what I read that they experienced a cough and then some of what came up um, went into the nasal pharynx. And so therefore a sneeze like resulted in, in their experience. So. Yes, that yeah. definitely makes sense. Okay. All right. So we're going to crank these out so that we can, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time on this next one. Cause we are, we're running up. I'm a talker. So, um, okay. So our recurrent upper respiratory infections, that is one of my telltale signs. Okay. Because in our adult patients, we see aspiration pneumonia. Okay. That's a, you know, Hey, we've got issues here with our littles. It very, very rarely gets to the point of aspiration pneumonia. Okay. So you're going to see these kids that have recurrent upper respiratory infections. And I don't mean, you know, oh, well, they had one about six months ago. That was it. I'm talking about these kids that are constantly staying sick where they've got that chest congestion. They've got that runny or stuffy nose, the cough, all of these things. And it just keeps hanging around and lingering and it's not going away. It, you know, the doctor will treat it with an antibiotic and a steroid and within a week they've got another one. Now, every once in a while that can just be from allergies, but it's very rare. Almost I'm not going to put a percentage on it because this is not scientific. This is purely based off of my experience, but nine times out of 10 in my experience in those kids that have those recurrent upper respiratory infections that are staying ill like that all the time, it's because they're aspirating, whether it be food or liquid. So definitely that is probably number one red flag right there. If you hear that from parents, if you don't have a swallow study, send them on their way <laughs> and get that figured out before you put anything else in that kiddo's mouth. Okay. Um, and then your increased mealtime duration, that's kind of one we talked about over here with the increased fatigue um, and your wheezing and chest congestion, same kind of thing. Um, the wheezing, if anyone has experienced asthma or has kids or has heard a kid with asthma, excuse me, you know what that wheezing sounds like. Okay. All right. Let's jump over here. So these are our diagnoses and comorbidities that we see. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you with most of these, you don't see just one in a kid. Okay. And all of these, when I say diagnoses and comorbidities, when I'm say, talking about comorbidities, I'm talking about a comorbidity to feeding and swallowing dysfunction or disorder. Okay. I'm not talking about just in general. So, um, so with our kiddos with cerebral palsy, also known as CP, one of the, you know, hallmark signs and symptom of cerebral palsy is low muscle tone. Okay. So overall, they're going to have that weak oral musculature. They're going to have trouble with managing any kind of liquids, any kind of foods, um, a lot of times you're going to see dysphagia in these kiddos because they have such poor muscle tone a lot of times. Um, now it could, and sorry, correction, different types of cerebral palsy, right? So you have ones that are hyper and hypo. So you have that real strict constricted muscle 
hyper, and then you've got your hypo, which is that low tone. So either one, you can still see issues with their swallowing and almost always you do. Um, and these are a lot of our kids that unfortunately end up with feeding tubes. Um, they have trouble with overall weight loss, um, following that kind of developmental trend on the growth chart, if you will. And a lot of times with them, you will also see poor postural control because of the hyper or hypotonia. And so they need a lot of postural support. And as we talked to kind of mentioned, touched on during the anatomy section, that postural control is so important. Okay. Um, autism spectrum disorder. Okay. These are our kids that they come in and, okay, well, my child eats chicken nuggets, French fries, Cheez-Its, and goldfish. Okay, well, those are all in the same color wheel, and they're all crunchy, and that's about it, okay? So you kind of tie in food selectivity and food overall food like texture aversions color aversions that that pulls in sometimes it can pull into over here our sensory processing disorder that can tie into our autism spectrum kiddos but a lot of times these are our kids that you're probably going to want to work very closely with your occupational therapist with um, so in our clinic we believe in heavily using a multidisciplinary approach in that um, the speech side of life, we're working with truly the swallowing portion. Now we still work on the feeding and the behaviors and things like that. But if we have a kiddo that has true sensory processing concerns and issues, um, that is one where we want to have our OTs involved because that is definitely more their area than ours. Not saying that we can't do it, it, it definitely just gets a little gray in there. So just something to remember. Um, so again, these are our kiddos where you can see weight loss. Um, a common thing, a common theme with our kids with autism is that, you know, oh, well, they were eating really well. And then just like our speech at 18 months, all of a sudden they stopped. And now they drink three Pediasures a day and eat Cheez-Its. Okay. So those are going to be the ones that, you know, they are of high concern for overall management and chewing skills and things like that, because, well, they're not chewing, they're drinking Pediasure. They might be eating Cheez-Its, which is great, but if they're not chewing anything else, oh, okay. <laughs> um, they are also known for being our overstuffers and our pocketers. So those are, those are really, really common ones and our grazers, right? So they don't like to sit down at the table. Um, they have a lot of those negative and um, problematic mealtime behaviors. Okay. So um, I hate to do this guys, but I am going to go kind of quickly through these and I would be happy to talk with any of you further about these. We will tie in a lot of this stuff next week when we talk about referrals. So I'm just going to really touch on these so that we have time for the case study and for questions at the end, because I don't want to rob you guys of that. Okay. So with our feeding tubes, we have our NG tube, which is through the nose, 
into our stomach. We have the NJ tube, which is through our nose, straight into the small intestine. G tube, which is through the stomach and J tube, small intestines. And then we have our mix, which is our Mickey button for any of those of you that work with kiddos already. And that's our GJ mix where they have, they have the option to go into either or. Okay. Um, so those kiddos obviously myriad of different concerns and reasons for their feeding tube. Um, a lot of them are listed right here. Okay. But what is that parent's main goal? Almost always. They want them to come off the tube or they want them to be less dependent on the tube. And so our goal is to make sure that they can do it safely. Okay. Um, this is one too. We talked about with our down syndrome kids, you know, I talked about a lot of times these kiddos, if you are seeing them for feeding and swallowing concerns, um, <laughs> we're real stubborn. Okay. That's not something we can treat. That just goes along with down syndrome. <laughs> um, but a lot of times you will see some of that weak, poor oral motor control. Some of it can truly be caused by the macroglossia, um, usually not the fissures of the tongue like we talked about, but the macroglossia, just learning how to control their tongue, how to move their tongue. Um, and a lot of times you'll see pocketing in our Down syndrome kiddos, and that's just that overall poor control, motor control, okay? Um, epilepsy, so this is one that if you get the chance to dive further into this and you are truly interested in feeding and swallowing disorders, I recommend looking into the effects of seizure disorders and just seizures in general on pediatric swallowing dysfunction and disorders. So with our kids with epilepsy, it's kind of interesting and also really sad at the same time because often in our kids with epilepsy, they are either going through the diagnosis process and so they're just trying to figure out what's going on. Are they truly having seizures? And then if they are finding a medication that works and finding the, you know, appropriate dosage, all of that. But meanwhile, they're continuing to have these seizures. And every time they have a seizure, something else is affecting that swallow and it's getting worse. Or, you know, we may have worked and we've gotten so much better. And then all of a sudden we have a seizure and we take 10 steps backwards. So I have a little girl right now I see who, if you came in and you saw her with me tomorrow, you guys would think, why on earth are you seeing her? But I continue to see her because we're still having seizures about every two to three weeks. We're still having a seizure and sometimes they're very small. Sometimes they only last for a minute or two. And so our dysfunction after that, not a big change. But a few weeks ago, we had one that lasted for an hour and we had left-sided weakness. We had overall, I mean, we were losing foods and liquids out of her mouth. We were having trouble with pocketing. We were having trouble even finishing a meal. So with your kids with epilepsy, that is one where, you have to be aware that, especially in kids, again, because they're still figuring out that correct dosage is that a lot of times, whenever they have that seizure, you're going to go backwards and you're going to have to regain all of those skills that you work so hard to get. But just know that you are your kid's biggest advocate um, with, with epilepsy. Okay. Um, so feeding aversions, we kind of touched on this, but these are our kiddos that, like we said, kind of up here with our autism spectrum. These are our kiddos that they are refusing any foods with textures. They're refusing to eat meats. Um, they don't like anything that has a coarse or 
um, thick texture like mashed potatoes or oatmeal, things like that. Um, drug exposure. This is one I actually, this is my next research project. And um, because in so many of our children that we see in the clinic, we see a lot of foster care children. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them have been exposed to drugs in utero. And they were, some of them were not born prematurely. A lot of them were born prematurely. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors involved, but I personally am very interested in that drug exposure and how it affects feeding and swallowing over the a child's lifespan. So, and when I say lifespan, I mean from infancy through about six to seven is when I have started to see a lot of those different issues kind of go away, fade away. They're able to, you know, maintain and compensate for some of those difficulties. But a lot of times it's really hard from infancy through about three and four. So, but that is one that you'll see a lot of swallowing concerns with, which jumps into laryngomalacia and tracheomalacia. So if you guys aren't familiar with that, um, I'm sure you've heard people talk about a floppy airway or a floppy epiglottis. <laughs> okay. So with your tracheomalacia, that's when the cartilage and the trachea, it hasn't developed properly. And thus it presents with the floppy airway. And that's where you'll, you'll hear those breathing difficulties. And laryngomalacia is very, very similar. It's just that the larynx didn't form properly. And so again, you've got that floppy airway and that tissue actually falls over the airway and can partially block it. And that's where you'll hear that strider that we talked about. Okay. That, that honking our goose. Okay. Um, your laryngeal notch and laryngeal cleft. So laryngeal notch is a step down from a laryngeal cleft. And basically um, they have a rating system for a laryngeal cleft and it's rated from one to four in severity. And so that's that rare malformation involving the larynx, also known as the voice box. <laughs> um, and sorry, let me pull up my notes to make sure I don't tell y'all anything incorrectly. But um, so it's the, ma the malformation of the larynx and of the esophagus. And this is normally the larynx is completely separate from the esophagus. But when you have that laryngeal cleft, these structures don't develop normally in embryo. And there's an opening connecting the larynx and the esophagus. Okay. Um, and that is where that food and liquid can just pass straight through the larynx into your lungs. Okay. Um, and so that's another one. It typically becomes apparent in the first few months of life and you'll hear the feeding problems, wheezing, strider, <laughs> aspiration, respiratory distress, reflux, um, weight, uh, failure to thrive. So poor weight gain, overall poor growth, all of those things. So different things like that, that we talked about. Um, and like I said, it can be rated from type one through four and it's classified on the location and the extent. So the severity of the cleft, and that is one, um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. That's one along with laryngomalacia and tracheomalacia with the laryngeal cleft and notches. A lot of times they will use the prolarin injections, Botox injections, <laughs> in attempt to correct those with laryngomalacia and tracheomalacia. A lot of times both of those will 
naturally go away by a child's first birthday. Um, sometimes they follow them a little bit longer to 18 months to two years. Um, and every once in a while they do require surgery, but that is much more rare. I see out of, out of my kids that have laryngomalacia and tracheomalacia, I think I've had two ever that have had to have a surgery to correct it. So, yeah. Okay. So you have 30 minutes left and I know how important those case studies were to you. So I just wanted to give you a little heads up. Yes. Okay. We're going to go fast. <laughs> okay. So cleft lip, cleft palate. Um, so I'm not going to go into what exactly those are. Um, I'm sure you guys know you're very familiar with those. So the ARFID, um, that's the one we kind of talked about a little. So this is one where they've got that avoidance um, and really adverse feeling towards foods. And this is one though, it's the, the way that they classified that from, okay, a feeding aversion to true ARFID is if we have true psychological concerns or involvement um, a dependence on some other form of feeding. So whether it be a tube or again, pediatures, they may be one and then a significant nutritional deficiency. So obviously they're not getting enough nutrients. They're not getting all those different vitamins that they need to grow and function the way that they should. Um, and then significant weight loss or failure to thrive. And that is what would fall into the ARFID category. Okay. Sorry. I kind of bounced around there. So our failure to thrive kiddos. So that's when there's a weight height and head circumference. Um, that's when those fall below the standard growth charts, specifically when their weight falls lower than the third percentile or below 20% of the ideal weight for their height. Okay. Excuse me. Um, weight loss. That's another one. We talked about that earlier. EOE, we kind of touched on, um, like Leanne said, if you're interested in GERD and EOE, please check out our podcast. We go in depth in both of those. Okay. Um, your sensory processing disorder. So these are going to be your kids that are hypersensitive. They are your avoiders. They are your sensory seekers. Um, and again, that's where we really want to get our OTs involved just because that is their area of expertise. Okay. Um, your Trichocolin syndrome. So this is one where they have an underdeveloped zygomatic zones, uh, zones, bones, sorry, y'all. <laughs> um, but that is one where we do see feeding and swallowing concerns with them. Um, Pierre Robin syndrome is not actually a syndrome. It's a sequence. So sorry on that. That was a typo on my part, but that is where they have, um, some jaw hypoplasia, and then they typically also have a U-shaped cleft palate. Okay. Um, hypotonia ties into kind of what we talked about with the cerebral palsy, where it's just that it's that low tone and, but that doesn't have to go with cerebral palsy. So that's why I did list it separately because we do see a lot of children that just have low tone. Okay. Um, and one that I didn't add on here that kind of goes along with our low tone that we talked to, we did talk about, um, hydrocephalus being something that can occur in utero. Well, after they're born. Um, but that is another one that can also be a comorbidity with swallowing and feeding disorders. The ankyloglossia, that's where we talked about the tongue and lip tie. Okay. Um, and those sometimes they don't have to be reversed, but a lot of times they do. Um, and that is one or a revision. And that is one where we, 
We do see more issues when they're trying to breastfeed. So if you have a parent that says, oh, well, they, you know, they can't latch or they're having trouble latching or they never latched and we did a bottle, um, look always, always, always look for that tongue and lip tie because I can't tell you how many times I've had kids come in and for whatever reason, for however long their pediatricians have missed it or they haven't looked for it. And the parents have no idea that it's even a concern or something that they should be looking for or what to look for. So as professionals, and again, we'll touch on this next week during the evaluation portion, but that's always something you want to look for. Your TBI, these are, these are rare. Obviously we don't see these a lot in kids, but they do happen. Um, so same kind of thing with adults where you can see all sorts of different, um, symptoms that go along with a TBI with the swallowing difficulties. Okay. I'm so sorry to have to run through that, but like I said, we want to jump into this next portion too, because I want you guys to be able to apply a lot of the stuff that we just talked about. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to, you know what, we're going to save this for next week, Leanne, because this kind of talks, this does jump into a lot of what we're talking about next week. Um, and that way we'll have plenty of time. And so that just means that all of y'all have to come back and see us next week on Monday. <laughs> but I do think these are recorded so they can access them later too, right? Okay, perfect. So if you guys are unavailable next Monday and you're interested in, you know, how this really can apply to your practice, aside from all of the stuff that we talked about tonight, please check out next week's where we talk about the evaluation and the presentations and then just obviously the treatment. So how, you know, how do we evaluate these kids and then how do we help them? How do we treat them? Okay. So like I said, we'll save that for next week. So our first case study, this is one, and I don't know why, Leanne, I can't move our, our little boxes on the side to read that, but that's okay. Okay. So Oh, these you know are, do you yeah. want me to read it for you? Sure. Okay. All right. So Tyler is a one year, six month old male who was referred by ST services to ST by his GI doctor due to concerns of weight loss. He has a history of oropharyngeal dysphagia, laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia, and stage two laryngeal cleft. His mother and father report that he is currently on nectar thickened level two consistency liquids and that he will drink it, but that he has started stealing their drinks or getting his older sister's cup and she's drinking thin liquids. They report that he will cough anytime he does this. His parents also state that he has trouble with any foods that have to be chewed. He'll choke or gag with certain textures and has started refusing to eat at least one meal a day. He had a follow-up swallow study two weeks ago, which revealed tracheal aspiration of thin, decreased bolus manipulation and formation, decreased laryngeal elevation, penetration of a bite of cookie, and incoordination of laryngeal closure. He had a triple scope three months ago, which I'm going to need clarification on in just a minute, Caitlin, mm -hmm. <laughs> at which time they found the laryngeal cleft tracheomalacia and laryngomalacia and used a prolarin prolarin mm -hmm. prolarin injection his gi doctor has expressed to the parents that if he does not gain weight before their next appointment in 3 months then they will have to place a g tube okay guys so 
first off, we'll touch on triple scope is when you have the GI, ENT, and pulmonologist in to do the upper and lower GI scopes. Okay. So the GI will look at the, the duodenum, the stomach, um, the esophagus, the ENT looks at obviously that the mouth, the throat, um, and then your pulmonologist is going to check out the lungs and make sure, um, and the bronchial tubes and different things like that. Um, okay. So these questions, we're going to use these case studies this week and next week. Um, and we'll also add another one next week, but for this week, the first question is what are the different, Oh, and sorry, Leanne, we talked about, um, so for this portion, we kind of just want you guys to, um, how did we say, do we want to, they can't really raise their hand, but they can just unmute themselves and answer. Is that what we were saying? On webinar, they kind of can't unmute themselves. So oh, okay. um, still think um, just for tonight, you might have to use the chat feature or the Q&A and I'll try to read your answers out. Okay. Um, if you don't want me to say your name, you can always um, use the Q&A box anonymously. That's an option too, um, so that I can kind of offer up your answers um, to Caitlin. Yeah. Okay. So our first question is, what are the different red flags in this study? So we talked about those different red flags and symptoms to look out for. So what are those different red flags? And I'm over here like, oh, I want to go. I want to go. <laughs> and I again, wanna... guys, this is, this is not a test. This is purely to tie in everything that we talked about. I want you guys to be able to look at this and pick out those different red flags that we talked about. And then while you're going through this, your next question is going to be, what are those different comorbidities and diagnoses that we see in this study? Mm -hmm. So step one, pick out those red flags that, that make your little SLP radar go up. Yep. Okay. So, um, we've got a couple red flags so far, the refusing mm -hmm. to eat the meal, yep. uh, choking and gagging, coughing with thin liquids, trouble chewing. Mm -hmm. I like kind of love it that he's like stealing his parents <laughs> drinks. Oh, that is almost all the time. My kiddos that are on thick and liquids because other people in their house are not on thick and liquids. So, you know, they'll get a hold that, Oh, well, they got a hold of my Mountain Dew the other day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. So some more answers are weight loss. Yep. And I think some of the comorbidities mm -hmm. is the history of oropharyngeal dysphagia, laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, or would you say those are red flags? No, those are, those are comorbidities. Yep. Okay. Cause that's a, that's a diagnosis. So that's kind of that differentiation right there. All right. So yeah, good. And another answer was um, the red flags are weight loss, cough, gag, refusal to eat, trouble with foods and certain textures. We, we kind of have a good side question. This will take yeah. us off on a tangent, but I'm going to throw it out there because I think it's like something good to kind of be thinking on. Okay. Um, what's being done to prevent dehydration for being on nectar thick liquids versus thin. So like, you know, when they refuse that level of thickness, how do we address dehydration? That is a great question and something that we see so often, right? So this is one where we have to figure out what's going to work for this child. So if 
because nine times out of 10, they may not drink like, let's say, okay, they're not drinking their milk thickened, but they'll drink water thickened or they won't drink water or milk, but they'll drink juice, you know, something like that. That's where you're going to supplement with whatever they will drink. That's what we're, that's what we're kind of living on. Um, but this is one too, where it's, that's why it's a super sensitive situation. So, you know, down here, we talked about how the GI doctor expressed that if we're not gaining weight in three months, we're looking at that G tube. And unfortunately this is a kiddo that ended up with a G tube, um, because those refusal behaviors got so severe and actually (laughs) just your question we ended up dehydrated and we had to place a G-tube before that three month period was up because of those refusal behaviors. Um, he not only was refusing to drink, but he started refusing to eat. Um, this was before, uh, he was refusing the one meal a day, but that was early on. So it got to the point where he was only eating a snack mid morning. And that was when we ended up in the hospital with an emergency G-tube placement. So um, that is one that it's a super sensitive situation, but it is also very dependent on each individual child. So I don't feel like I could give you a real great answer on that. It just depends on what you can get the child to drink. Um, And if nothing, then that is one where, again, you've got to figure out, you kind of have to weigh your options too, right? So if the kiddo continues to refuse, continues to refuse, and we have all of these different comorbidities, you're likely going to talk with that GI doctor and say, Hey, I think we need to go ahead and either place NG or G tube, you know, go ahead and do one or the other, because you're not going to, you're not going to make any progress. If the child isn't getting adequate nutrition and hydration, we know that, um, A lot of times G-tubes are very, very difficult for parents more so than anyone, um, because that is the last thing that they want for their child. But that is where that education piece from us comes in talking about how, you know, what all it's going, how it's going to benefit their child and how it's going to help us get to where we need to be. So they always view it kind of as a step back, but we have to show them that it's not a step back. It's actually a step forward because now we can ensure that little Tyler is getting adequate nutrition and hydration, and we can really work on all of those different oral motor skills that we need to, to be able to tolerate those different foods and liquids safely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, quick question. Really good one. I thought actually, I was like, Ooh, someone's wearing their thinking cap tonight. Um, so can the free water policy apply for a child as young as Tyler? Like, is there, has anyone looked into this? Is there like research published on this? Do you That's know? That's a really, that is a really good question. Um, now I will be totally honest with you. I have, I have a very close working relationship with, um, my GI pulmonology and ENT doctors. We actually have an aerodigestive clinic at our hospital that is about 20 minutes from my practice, but we get, so we're right on the border of Tennessee and Georgia. So this hospital is in Tennessee, but all of our, they, and they accept our Georgia Medicaid kiddos and all the CMOs, but they don't then provide therapy there. So they come to us for therapy. Um, but anyway, I work very closely with those doctors 
And they have all said that they are in agreement to do a free water protocol as long as there is no food involved, which goes along with the free water protocol. <laughs> but I think some of it is just they it scares them. Um, but really one of those things too, I will say for me personally, I have done it with a few kids, um, but working in the area I work in, uh, I don't feel incredibly confident with a lot of my families that they will carry it out appropriately. And so if something were to happen and we don't, I, I mean, it could just get really sticky really fast in those situations, because, you know, if you're using a free water protocol with, you know, a patient in the nursing home, you, you they're not really going anywhere and you can generally keep a better eye on them. Now, as we all know in the nursing home, plenty of times things get given to patients that shouldn't. And if they're on free water protocol, that does not mean that they get good oral care before they get the water, you know, all of these things. We know that that happens, but a lot of times, um, at least in the area, again, in the area that I'm in, um, a lot of our families, Either they don't think that their child has as severe of issues as they do, or they don't really understand it as much as you try to explain it. Um, or you have a mom and a dad that are totally on board and they're doing everything they can to help their child. And then, you know, grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle say, oh, it's fine. Give it to them. You know, so a lot of different factors come into play when you're working with children too, because they also, a lot of them, they're not talking yet, or if they are, they still can't form a sentence to tell you, oh, well, so-and-so gave me this, but I had just eaten this. And, you know, they're not really good historians, <laughs> if you will. So there's just a lot of factors in play to, with that, that I would really caution you on, but I think it's a really good idea. And I definitely would like to look further into that because that would be, that could be really beneficial for a lot of our kids. Um, okay. So, I just want to touch on one more with this. So we were talking about poor weight gain. Um, just not really like a red flag, but looking at that as far as they were talking about having to place a G-tube. Okay. So that is one that technically it is a red flag, right? Because if we're talking about a G-tube placement, we want to be doing everything we can to help that child to make sure that they don't have to have that G-tube placed because we know that families don't want that to happen. But like I was saying, in this particular situation, this is where you really should consider talking to the GI about placing the G-tube, going ahead and placing that G-tube and being able to work on those skills. Because there are times where all of those symptoms and red flags are too severe to come back from without doing some sort of eternal, you know, eternal. <laughs> oh my goodness, y'all. It is almost 10 o'clock my time and I, I have worked a full day, so I apologize. Um, but without having to do those two placements. Okay. So let's jump on to the next one. Cause we only have 10 minutes left. So, um, Leanne, do you want to read that one? Oops. Sure. I'd love to. Okay. <laughs> All right. Jillian is a two year, four month old female who was referred to ST services by her pediatrician due to concerns of a swallowing deficit. 
Her mother reports she is constantly battling upper respiratory infections, coughs at least once every meal, and has big coughing fits or choking spells at least once a day. She is currently taking omeprazole. She does not have any known allergies. Her mother reports a normal pregnancy and delivery with no complications. Jillian has seen a GI doctor for her GERD, but has not seen them in six months. Jillian is starting to refuse foods such as crackers, PB&Js, which were a highly preferred food, meats, and fruit snacks. Okay, guys, so same questions as our first one. What are those red flags and symptoms to look out for? And then our second, um, what are some of those comorbidities, if any? Mm-hmm. Yep, and we've already got some hot keyboardists. I see it. They knew what questions were coming. Yep. <laughs> them really well. So, um, so for some of those red flags, we've got refusal of PO, mm-hmm. uh, coughing and choking. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to throw one out there because I love practicing what I've just learned. And uh, it's um, that there, she's now refusing some of her favorite foods. Like she's mm-hmm. turning against like her faves. That's like, yep. okay. Yep. You like my little sound effects there? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've got some more answers coming in. So red flags are upper respiratory infections, coughing Mm -hmm. each meal, choking and refusing foods. Mm -hmm. Another um, uh, submission for respiratory infections and reflux being a red flag. Yep. And another one. Um, submitted upper respiratory comma coughing and diminishing appetite. Yep. So those are, did we pretty much cover all the red flags? Would you add any to those, Caitlin? Mm-mm. Nope. All right. And so then for the comorbidities, now, would you say GERD is a red flag or a comorbidity? I was actually just going to clarify on that too. So it could be both. <laughs> so um with her, she has a true diagnosis, so I would consider it a comorbidity, but in this case, it is also a red flag because of all of these things. So we haven't seen our GI in six months, right? We're currently taking omeprazole. We're a growing two-year, four-month-old, and we're starting to refuse these foods. So like we stressed so much in this presentation, we have to figure out the why, Okay. So my first thought is, okay, she probably needs to change her dosage of omeprazole Mm -hmm. because if she's on the same dosage that she was on when she got diagnosed six months ago, well, she's grown and she's changed and her structures have changed and, you know, her weight has increased and her height has increased, which means that our medication dosage probably needs to increase too, because in children, it's, it's different than adults. You know, they'll get put on 40 milligrams of omeprazole and they may be on that for a long, long time. Whereas with kids, you have to do a slow increase. And again, it's based on usually their weight and age. So that is something that you would be amazed how often I see that it just, they just need a medication change. Hmm. So that is one, again, like I said, we have to look at the why. So that was part of this one. Okay. That was part of her issue. 
in the long run. Um, but we did also end up having some true dysphagia, which is why we started to refuse those crackers, peanut butter and jellies, meats and fruit snacks, because they were so much harder for her to chew. And so she was having the quote unquote choking spells as mom calls them, but she was truly having issues with the overall oral management. Um, she had poor laryngeal elevation and she did end up with some aspiration. So obviously that's where those upper respiratory infections were coming from. So between the changes in her medication and then doing, she, let's see, she saw us for three times a week. Um, she was an intensive kiddo because we were starting to lose foods and we were really getting worried about weight loss. So, um, and then just overall upper respiratory infections. And we found out that she was aspirating. So, um, with all that being said, she was one of our intensive ones and now she's down to let's once a week. So she's kind of monitoring now, but she's doing really well. And that is obviously not her real name. (laughs) I just want to clarify. (laughs) Um, Okay. So we've got five minutes. So if y'all have questions, comments, concerns, anything. Yeah. um, I've got a couple for me too. I would love that. This is my first live CEU course ever. So I know the, like the start was a little rough and I completely acknowledge that. And I think that that will just get better with time as I present more and more and my confidence gets a little bit better. So thank y'all for bearing with me and still participating. Um, there's one thing that I think, uh, Caitlin, you and I can tag team after the presentation and then get posted up on speech therapy PD's, um, website Mm -hmm. is a way to connect a lot of those specific disorders that you talked about with the body systems that you mentioned during the anatomy portion of the talk. So kind of like linking those together and maybe you can like put it, I say, we, again, very generously, like, (laughs) you know, put it together and in a page and we can get those uploaded and also maybe in our show notes too. So people can access. Yeah, so that for sure. Um, just lots of thank you. Like it's all good. You did a, you did a great job tonight, Caitlin. Thank you. Well, thanks guys. <laughs> I really, I really do appreciate it. Like I said, this is my first live one. The only other presentation was when we did our podcast and that was just you and I chatting. <laughs> so. All right. There is kind of one question in it- mm-hmm. It might be, it might be like an in-depth one. Um, so uh, this, the question, the person who's asked the question is like happy to kind of like discuss later or maybe even next week, but I'm just going to throw it at you and see what sticks to the wall. Okay. All right. So can you address tongue protrusion slash pumping noted frequently in down syndrome at some time? So tonight or like next week, this person has two 14 month olds with down syndrome on their caseload. Um, they're not related. It just happened to have those things in common. Okay. One is not drinking by mouth beyond sips off of a spoon, but orally eating up a storm. Also still G-tube fed and not losing weight, but is maintaining and very slowly gaining. And of course they have recommended a swallow study and it should be on the calendar soon. Um, So they're kind of just giving you some background, but really asking about that tongue protrusion and pumping that we see in Down syndrome. Yes. So that is one we will talk a lot about the tongue protrusion and lingual thrusting. We talk a lot about that next week when we're talking about the different treatment options. So that could be a great one for you to look at. And also, um, 
I don't know. Is my email available for them, Leanne? I don't think so, unless you put it in your bio. I don't think I did, but let me jump on the chat real quick. There are, my, there are some references for you guys as well, but I am just going to give you my email and I would be happy to talk more with you um, regarding that because that is definitely one that I know we don't have enough time to jump into tonight. And like I said, yes, we'll talk about the lingual thrusting and the pumping, not only in our um, Down syndrome kids, but just overall. Um, But since you've given me those different specifics, I would love to talk with you further because it is something again, I do have quite a bit of experience dealing with that. So I'm happy to give you some help. But like I said, tonight we're, we're kind of running thin on time. So. Yeah. All right. Two quick, quick things. Um, so Caitlin's email is in the chat box of zoom tonight. So go ahead and grab that everybody. And and please feel free to (laughs) contact me questions, anything happy to answer. And one person would like to know, um, what's the hospital near your private practice? If you're able to share that, if you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Erlanger Children's Hospital. So it's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then last question, yeah, potentially. At what age does the curve between the nasopharynx and the hypopharynx change from infants to adults? That is a really good question. Let me see if I wrote that down. Ooh, I and like I, that we got a stumper. I know. Like, I want to guess. I'm going to go with two because everything happens at two. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to go with between 18 and 24 months, but you know what? Let's see if I can find it super quick while we have a second. Wouldn't you know I went straight to the page? Nice. I know. How does that, that never happens, right? Mm-hmm. Ooh, another one of our participants was going to guess two as well. So, <laughs> so all this educated guessing. Well, and of course, all it says in my, also, if y'all are interested in a book, this book, I have it listed in, it is the last one on my references page. This is a great reference tool. Okay. It's pediatric swallowing and feeding assessment and management. And they have a third edition out now. And I got mine off Amazon and I use this thing a lot, especially more so for my presenting and everything, but it's really good if you need like some specifics. Um, and it just goes in into a lot of different stuff and it goes into all of your different systems and it gives you case studies. So if you, I mean, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, if you don't like research, don't buy it. But (laughs) if you are working with feeding and swallowing kids and you need that extra research, just something not light reading, I guess, but <laughs> I, I take it chapter by chapter, but it's a great tool. Um, but in the book, it doesn't talk about when that transition happens. It just talks about how from, so in the infant, the nasopharynx and hypopharynx blend into one structure and thus there is no true oropharynx as is found in the older child. So it just goes to say an older child. It doesn't specify the age, but th- I bet that's one we could look up on lovely Google too. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Google, the holder of all the knowledge. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know that one guys. <laughs> That's all right. You did fabulous. I learned so much. Thank you so much for putting together this presentation, for talking about all these red flags and then comorbidities. And I really liked the opportunity to kind of like 
practice that knowledge with your case studies. So that was really good. Have a great night, everyone. We really appreciate you joining us. If you've made it this far through the episode to hear the closing remarks, please email me at speechuncensored at gmail.com and I will send you a certificate because I am proud of you. That is amazing. You did it. You succeeded through the marathon. Kudos to you. (laughs) I love it. All right. So I want to thank Caitlin again for all the massive hard work that she did to prepare this presentation, to corral all of her resources and to just like blow my mind time and time again. This was amazing. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I'd love for the listeners to leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps other listeners find us and grow right along with us. So that would be awesome. Big thanks to the team at Speech Therapy PD for the work that they do editing and getting this ready to air on the airwaves to delight all of our ears with this wonderful bits of knowledge and education. And I'd like to thank the listeners, of course, for tuning in. Like I said, if you may it this far and you can hear my voice. That's an achievement and I'm really proud of you. So holler at your girl and let me know because I think that's awesome. And uh, I'll see you next week for more good times on the Speech Uncensored podcast. In the meantime, keep nourishing and flourishing y'all. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 